Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to tell you a little bit about why I decided to write a talk about this. Um, I've been teaching now for almost, for over 20 years. Every year, it seems like, at least once I teach uh, Kant's groundwork uh, to the metaphysics of morals. And um, on the basis of all the times of teaching Kant in undergraduate classes, uh, I can feel justified in saying that almost without exception, university undergraduates, and as far as I can tell, almost everybody else thinks that it is often acceptable and occasionally obligatory to deliberately make false assertions with the intent to deceive or to lie. Um, my, my gut feeling has always been on the other side. And uh, finally, last year, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a talk about this. Um, and I'm still, but I'm still thinking through it. Um, which is evidence of which is that I spent the weekend, instead of grading my midterms, rewriting the talk I wrote last spring because I still wasn't satisfied with it. And I'm probably going to end up rewriting this. So I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts. But when we talk about lying, right, we talk about the ethics of lying, uh, everybody always goes to the extreme example, right? They're always like, well, okay, but what if, right, there's a murderer or a Nazi or whatever, at your door, and you've got someone hiding in your attic. Like, clearly, you have to lie. Um, and it, that example is worth talking about. Right? But the fact of the matter is, all of us tell lies all the time. And I bet no one in this room has ever told a lie to save someone's life. Right? We tell lies to children about Santa Claus. We tell lies to our friends about whether they look good in the clothes they're wearing. We tell lies to our mother about the quality of dinner. right? We, we lie, 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 lie. And we defend those lies, too. We just don't defend lying in theory by talking about those lies. right? So I think, it's, um, I think that that's where we ought to start. right? I want to I talk about little lies. right? I want to talk about the lies that we tell all the time. And I want to examine the intuition that those lies are acceptable. And I want to make the case that they're not. I want to think about why they're not. And I promise at the end I'm going to go back to the murder at the door. It's just going to take me a while to get there. Um, I'm going to examine lying. I'm going to take my departure from the thought of Thomas Aquinas. I'm not going to stick with Thomas Aquinas the whole paper, but I'm going to take my departure from there. Um, <clears throat> And because Aquinas is one of the many, believe it or not, philosophers throughout history who have thought that lies were never acceptable. Um, but I want to point out that Aquinas sets the bar considerably higher 
than just not lying, right? We think of not lying as a kind of extreme position. For Aquinas, that's, that's kind of minimal. What Aquinas thinks is demanded of us is that we be truthful, right? That we be um, truthful in our dealings with other people. And he only brings up lying because he points out if you're truthful, you can't lie, okay? So truthfulness is something even bigger, right, and more demanding. Um, so I want to talk first about the difference between being truthful and on the one hand, right, which is a, is a trait, it's a virtue that you develop over time, and lying on the other. And so that's the first thing I'm going to do. The second thing I'm going to do is point out that truthfulness and whether or not we lie or tell the truth sometimes can seem to come apart in interesting ways. And I think when we consider the ways in which they can come apart, we begin to understand why some of us sometimes have the intuition that we need to lie, right? Um, so that's the second point. That's the second thing that I want to do. And then third, I want to argue that even though being truthful is very hard and it's our desire to be truthful that sometimes lead us, leads us to think that we ought to lie, I want to argue that that's still based on a misperception, that we still ought to strive um, not to lie even in those tricky situations. And then finally... I'll go back to the murderer at the door. Okay. So the first thing I want to do then is talk about truthfulness. Um, when Aquinas talks about lying in the second part of the second part of his Summa, right, um, he first brings up lying in the context of asking whether lying is opposed to being truthful. Okay. That's interesting. Um, because it's the importance of being truthful that sets the context for the things that Aquinas says about lying. And that means if we want to understand the wrongness of lying, we first have to understand what truthfulness is and why he thinks it's so important. So truthfulness for Aquinas is one of the virtues annexed to justice, interestingly enough. Right? Um, like all the other virtues that fall under justice, truthfulness has to do with what we owe other people, what Aquinas thinks we owe other people. We owe it to others, says Aquinas, to present ourselves to them in word and deed such as we are. In word and deed such as we are. When we develop the habits that allow us to consistently present ourselves to other, to others in word and deed such as we are, we cultivate the virtue of truthfulness. Okay, what does that mean? Um, I think it's probably easiest to get at that concept by thinking about um, ways in which we fail to present ourselves uh, in word and deed such as we are. Uh, so I don't know if you guys had to read, do you guys have to read The Great Gatsby in high school still? Right? So you remember that Gatsby um, what had this image, right? this carefully cultivated image of this wealthy, powerful, carefree playboy, lots of money, lots of fun. And of course, it turns out that, that Gatsby's a nobody right, from a very poor family. It's all this very carefully orchestrated fiction. 
But if you look at the, if you look at um, what actually happens in the book, Gatsby doesn't really lie very much. He does, maybe he tells a liar too from time to time, but he doesn't actually lie. His real lack of truthfulness is the image that he cultivates for himself, right? The image of privilege, the, Im the image of having lots of money, um, the image of being able to do whatever he wants, right? So whether or not he says anything false, he presents himself to others as vastly other than and different from what he actually is. And we're not Gatsby, right? We don't, we don't do that. Um, except we do kind of do that in a lesser way. Um, think of um, Instagram, right? Think of the filters that we use for our pictures on Instagram. Think of the posts that we put on, right? That we, we're curating an image of ourselves. And that image doesn't always match the reality. It doesn't always match what we are. We're being untruthful. We don't ever say anything false with intent to deceive, but we are kind of putting forward an image of what we are that doesn't match reality, right? Um, and we do that not just on social media. We do that when we pretend to be experts on things that we're not experts on. We do that when we fake enthusiasm. Oh, this, this party is so fun, right? We, we do that all the time. We do it, you stay in church a little bit longer just so that everybody thinks that you're, that you're pious. You're being untruthful, right? You're putting forward an image. Um, and I think when we think about just how easy it is to misrepresent ourselves, we begin to see how hard it is to really cultivate the virtue of truthfulness, to really present ourselves in word and deed as we actually are. Um, and now, with that, with that said, I think it's interesting to contrast the virtue of truthfulness, right, um, with specific instances of being untruthful in speech with the intent to deceive, with specific instances of lying, okay? Um, truth, being truthful, right, having the truthfulness as a virtue, and the act of telling the truth are clearly related to each other. Right, um, but they're also importantly distinct. Right, uh, I can't cultivate the virtue of truthfulness if I regularly lie. Okay, that's something we'll come back to. That's something Aquinas asserts, um, because when I lie, I am misrepresenting what is in my head to other people. Right, so I am being uh, I am being untruthful. Um, but. I don't necessarily accurately represent myself just because I refrain from lying, right? I don't achieve truthfulness just because I refrain from lying. And Aquinas offers, when Aquinas talks about this, he offers the example of boasting, okay? Um, so bragging, right? Boasting, says Aquinas, occurs when one lifts oneself up with words, when one describes oneself in such a way as to elevate oneself in the opinions of others. It's possible to lift yourself up in the opinions of other people without lying, right? You might be saying, you might be regaling people with true stories of your true achievements, right? 
You're not saying anything false. Uh, tell, uh, but Aquinas thinks that when you do that, you're still acting in a way that's opposed to the virtue of truthfulness. Okay. Um, and by way of explaining that claim, he quotes Paul, the Apostle Paul, who tells the Corinthians that he's not going to boast of what he has done, even though his boasts would be true, lest one think more of me than what he sees in me. Okay, now this is interesting, right? So it, think about what happens when you, you're really proud of something you've achieved. And you go around telling as many people as you, as you can what you've achieved. You're not lying, right? You're proud. You're, you're, you're excited about what you've done. And you want other people to be excited about the awesome things that you've done too. Why isn't that truthful? Right? Why, isn't that, why would that not be truthful? I think that what is at issue here is the fact that truthfulness means presenting yourself in word and deed as you are. And sometimes we don't see ourselves as we are. Sometimes we see ourselves as really awesome and magnificent and cool. And we want other people to see ourselves as really awesome and magnificent and cool. So we tell them true things that we've done. But we're not presenting ourselves as we are because maybe we're not as awesome as we think we are, right? We don't accurately see the reality of what we are. And Aquinas will say that being truthful, cultivating the true virtue of truthfulness, often involves what he says, what he calls less. Do less, right? Say less. You can, you can become more truthful when you say less about yourself because you're less likely to misrepresent yourself to others, right? So we, we, what we see in truthfulness is not just whether we intend to deceive other people in what we say, but it's, it's whether we achieve accuracy, right, in, in our presentations, in the things we present to other people. Um, okay. So... I think we can see here that if we're supposed to be truthful, right, if what we owe it to other people is to present ourselves as neither more nor less than we are, it's pretty clear why he thinks we can't lie, okay? Um, when we lie, we make false assertions with the intent to deceive, we are, it seems like, trying to create um, false impressions in the minds of other people. And we're, we're trying to create a false impression about what we believe in the minds of other people. Um, but at this point, um, it seems like there might be a problem. Okay? And the problem is this. I, we've seen that I can assert something true, for Aquinas thinks I can say something true, and still fail to act as truthfulness demands. Okay, so that's good, right? But it seems like in some instances, such as when I boast, maybe, I also might misrepresent myself by telling the truth. So I misrepresent myself when I lie, 
But if there are times when I misrepresent myself by telling the truth, then it seems like I might get myself in a catch-22, right? Like, I, I'm darned if I do, and I'm darned if I don't. How do I actually, how do I tell the truth? Um, so here, here's an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about, right? So suppose your grandmother, you know, uh, knits you a sweater, okay? Your grandmother, she, she spends months learning how to knit so she can knit you a sweater. She takes classes. She buys this special wool. She's really proud of it. She gives it to you for Christmas, and it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. Right? It's possible, right? But now what do you say to your grandmother, right? Uh, if you tell your grandmother you love the sweater, you're making a false assertion with an intent to deceive, right? You're lying. Okay, so you're not being truthful. Take that for a given, right? But if you tell your grandmother that the sweater is the ugliest thing you've ever seen, it seems like you might also be misrepresenting yourself in important ways, right? Um, because you're going to come across as ungrateful, unloving, <laughs> right, inconsiderate, and a host of other things. And it seems like there might be cases that, uh, so if you say that, right, it's true, the sweater is hideous. Um, but it's, when you say that, you are not adequately representing what you feel, about the gift to your grandmother, right? There's, 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 it seems like there's something missing there as well. And I think that what's at work there helps to explain the kind of intuition some of us feel that we ought to lie sometimes because we recognize we're misrepresenting reality when we say that we love the sweater but we also recognize that we're misrepresenting what we feel in our heart towards our grandmother when we simply say, well, this is hideous. Right? We're not, neither of those really achieves what truthfulness ought to achieve, right? Because if I, was, if I really um, succeeded in representing myself in word and deed to my grandmother with respect to this gift, it doesn't seem like either one of those achieves it, right? Um, and so some people have said, well, you just have to lie, right? The, the way that you achieve truthfulness here uh, is you just lie about the sweater, right? Because I maybe I'm conveying this deeper truth. I love you to my grandmother, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Um, this is an old answer to an old problem, okay? Um, and a version of this answer goes all the way back to Plato. Okay, Plato famously said um, that there are some lies that are noble lies. So I want to talk about Plato's idea of the noble lie for a while. And then I'm going to go back to Grandma in the Sweater. Okay? So in a short passage towards the end of the second book of his Republic, Plato asserts that all gods and human beings hate the true lie. Notice that interesting word, right? As if there are some lies that are true lies. And what he means by true is a lie that's really a lie, right? All gods and human beings hate the true lie. And it quickly becomes clear that a true lie is a lie in the, in the proper sense, 
Okay? And he tells us what he thinks a lie in the proper sense is. It's the kind of lie that occurs when you lie, he says, about the most important things to what is most important in us. And those lies, he says, are evil because they cause ignorance in the soul of the person who is lied to. Okay, so what does it mean to have a lie in your soul? Well, the context makes it clear that to have falsehood in your soul is to hold incorrect beliefs about the things that matter most. Okay? Um, Con Plato makes this claim in the context of, of describing certain stories that he thinks we ought not tell children. Okay? So in his time, of course, these are the stories, the stories told to children are the stories of Greek mythology. Right? Stories where heroes do things like lie, rape people, steal, right? all, all kinds of crazy things the gods do. And you, you're telling small children these things, Plato thinks that's bad. Um, and he says when we tell children stories like that, we cause falsehood in their souls about the most important things. Because we cause them to believe the wrong things about the gods and about what is moral and immoral and about what makes life meaningful. So if you tell children that gods and heroes lie and rape and steal, then you're holding up lying and raping and stealing as admirable things to do. Right? These are the things that the people we admire do. And when you teach them to admire activities like that, you're causing falsehood in their soul. Right? You're causing children to value things they shouldn't value. Um, and there's a lot of sense there. Okay, right? Your parents uh, probably didn't let you play Grand Theft Auto when you were little kids. Right? They probably uh, read you um, stories where the heroes did good things. Right? They, they read you The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, we, do, we train our children that way. We care, we care about what influences our children have and what stories we read to them. Um, because we're trying to create the right beliefs in children about the right things, right? We're trying to create truth in their soul. But here's the thing. Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe is a story, right? And no one who hears the story, even little kids, thinks that someone actually went through the back of the wardrobe and had adventures with a talking lion, right? They don't think those things actually happen. They're not lies. Those stories aren't lies because we're not trying to deceive anybody. Um, but Plato doesn't stop there. Plato's not just talking about fictional stories. Plato seems to insist that sometimes we have to deceive people about what is really the case in order to create truth in their soul. Sometimes we have to assert false Things. Plato calls these falsehoods lies in speech. These lies, he says, far from being bad, are often useful and sometimes obligatory. They are, says Plato, useful against enemies and as a preventative, like a drug for so-called friends, when from madness or some folly they attempt to do something bad. So by implication, not all deliberate deception causes falsehood in the soul. If I lie to prevent my friend from doing something stupid, or if I lie to an enemy, or so on and so forth, I don't, Plato thinks, cause falsehood in their souls. 
to the, to the contrary, right? Plato thinks that lies like this actually cause truth or can cause truth in the soul. Um, so he thinks truth matters, just like every other philosopher, right? Well, not every, like most other philosophers, he thinks truth matters, right? Um, he just thinks that sometimes you have to lie about reality in order to convey truth, okay? Um, and Plato gives examples, but I, I, I'm going to give some more contemporary, more contemporary than the Republic, not very contemporary examples to kind of help make the point. Because a lot of people find this idea intuitively appealing, right? Um, so um, first example, uh, President Roosevelt in World War II felt very strongly long before America became officially involved in the war, that America should assist the English in fighting Hitler. He felt this so strongly that he described himself in a letter to a friend as perfectly willing to mislead and tell untruths if it will win the war. And we now know that in at least one instance he did just that. He told Congress and the American people that an American naval ship, the Greer, had been fired on by a German submarine in an unprovoked attack. In fact, on Roosevelt's orders, the supposedly neutral ship had been working with the British, helping them to track the submarine, dropping depth charges, um, and the submarine provoked, fired back. So why did Roosevelt lie? Well, I think probably for several reasons, right? um, including uh, that wanting to hide that he'd exceeded his authority. But it, clearly the main reason was that Roosevelt felt it imperative that Congress and the American people have what he took to be an important truth in their souls, namely that they needed to join the war. Right? He had to lie about what was in order to create the, the right reality, the right view, the truth in their soul. Um, more mundane example, my six-year-old came home from school the other day and told me about how um, George Washington was so honest right, uh, that he owned up to cutting down his father's prized cherry tree. I heard that story too when I was a kid. I hate, if you heard it too, I hate to, to disabuse you of the fact that it didn't happen. Um, it was fabricated by one of Washington's biographers, a man named Parson Weems. And again, he probably had the best motives, right? He wanted to uh, inspire patriotism in little kids who read about George Washington, right? He wanted to uh, create a truth about perhaps about what it is to um, be a good leader or a truth about the nation's founders in the souls of little children. It's not true, but the motives are noble, right? It's a noble lie because it creates something in the soul of the hearer. Um, so I think this is the idea behind the, behind the notion that sometimes we have to fabricate reality in order to convey what we know to the mind of someone else, right? Um, facts about the world are messy and complicated. Um, and if, we, if we're honest about the facts, we're going to create the wrong views in the minds of people who can't handle the truth. So we have to lie about them. 
right? Um, I think it's understandable, right? But I, I think that this, the notion of the noble lie um, rests on an important fiction. Okay, so let's take stock of where we've come. We began by dis distinguishing the act of lying, right, which is the deliberate assertion of falsehood with the intent to deceive from the virtue of truthfulness. We saw that the virtue of truthfulness is a virtue whereby one presents oneself accurately to others, and we noted that there's a lot more to being truthful than just avoiding lying. Okay, and then we raised a problem. Don't we sometimes convey some truths more accurately with false assertions than with true ones? So while that idea is appealing, now I'm going to try to argue that it's false. Right? Um, at the heart of the idea of the noble lie is a very important assumption. The assumption that I can know and know in advance what someone else needs to believe, even if, what, uh, even if I can't bring them to believe that by pointing out any aspect of reality. Right? President Roosevelt felt Congress and the American people needed to believe that they had been attacked. Parson Weems felt that school children needed to believe that George Washington was a scrupulously honest little boy. You feel that your grandmother needs to believe that you like the sweater she knitted. We feel certain about these things, right? We have, feel like we have access to this, this fact about what people need to know. And we're so certain about it that we're willing to engage in deliberate deception to ensure that those beliefs come about in the minds of other people. All uh, because we think that the falsehoods we tell do a better job of conveying a vitally important truth. But notice the underlying assumption. The assumption is that I have a kind of clarity about the truth that needs to be conveyed. That I am in fact so clear about what needs to be conveyed to someone else that I can just bypass reality, right? But what exactly are the truths that need conveying? What makes them so obvious? Have I really gained access to them? The claim that I have to distort reality in order to convey a truth implies a conflict between reality and truth. And it also implies that I can have access to those truths, whatever they are, apart from reality. I don't need reality to know them. And this is what I want to talk about for a while. And then we'll come back again to Grandma's famous sweater. In her essay, The Nature and Aim of Fiction, Flannery O'Connor complains about a certain way of approaching the writing of fiction. Many writers approach fiction writing, O'Connor says, with their aims already in hand. They have a moral or a theme, and they think that story writing is just about putting a package on the message, right? So that writing becomes about saying what they knew all along, right? They pay no attention to whether the characters are believable or whether the story mirrors reality. 
And what I want to point out is what Flannery O'Connor is complaining about in fiction writing is exactly analogous to what we do when we construct a noble lie in order to convey some important truth. We have a, a moral or a theme that we need to convey to the minds of our hearers that the country needs to go to war or that the nation's founders were admirable or that I like the sweater. And so without caring about what is actually the case, we use our words to put a package on the idea. We try to convey what we already know, whether it matches reality or not. O'Connor has harsh words for this approach. She calls it Manichaean. Now, the Manichees were a religious cult popular in the time of St. Augustine that thought that, there, that the universe was in a war between the forces of good and the forces of light. It's like Star Wars, right? And they thought that the created world was evil. It's not the place where truth is found. O'Connor thinks the opposite. We are, says Flannery O'Connor, made out of dust. And consequently, if we want to seek truth, we have to get dusty. The writer is a truth seeker, to be sure, and the writer wants to convey truth in what he writes. But the writer is not in full possession of the truth he seeks in advance. O'Connor argues that truth, if it is to be found and grasped at all, can only be grasped in and through an honest encounter with the world itself. Consequently, she says, the writer can succeed only to the extent to which he learns to be humble in the face of what is. What does that mean? Well, Connor's point seems to be that reality itself, the created world, is the arena in which truth must be pursued and found. If what we find in reality doesn't fit our preconceived truth, then maybe the problem is with us and not with the world. The writer, who says O'Connor only succeeds insofar as he finds a glimpse of the truth for which he has forgotten to ask, must attempt above all else to do justice to the reality he experiences, something which, she says, can only occur through the violence of a single-minded respect for truth. So I want to argue that it's not just the fiction, and I think O'Connor would too, it's not just the fiction writer who needs to be humble in the face of what is, who needs to exhibit the violence of a single-minded respect for truth. I think we all do. I don't think we actually do know in advance what grandma needs to hear from us about the sweater or what children need to hear about founding fathers. Those things are things we have to try to learn. And the only way we can learn them is through our honest engagement with the world, by refusing to present ourselves and the world as any more or any less than they are. O'Connor was a writer of fiction. And her main point in the remarks I've referred to is that even our fictional creations cannot convey truth unless they capture how actual people would think and behave and act. But if even our fictions go wrong when they ignore reality, so much more do we go wrong in the attempt to rewrite or even simply invent facts to suit our purposes. I use the example of George Washington and the cherry tree O'Connor uses the example of sentimental stories about saints. 
which she irritably speculates are probably written by the same people who write smutty romances. Why is it so important to be humble in the face of what is? What harm could it do to create a fictional story in the interest of creating patriots? What harm could it do to write a fanciful, if entirely false, story in the interest of making a saint? What harm could it do to invent an act of aggression in the interest of getting your country to enter a war? The problem is that all of these examples involve a deep and dangerous hubris on the part of the author of the lie. You can go, if you want, and find the original version of the story about George Washington and the cherry tree. It's on the website of uh, the Mount, Mount Vernon website. You can go read it, right? It's a silly, sentimental little story. It does a great job of telling us what a 19th century parson thought an ideal child would be like. Apparently, ideal children do a lot of weeping and a lot of making pious little speeches. The story doesn't tell us anything about genuine honesty or patriotism. And we find the same thing in, this, in the stories about saints that O'Connor complains about. We find out what the author thinks a saint is like. But why should we care? Right? What makes the fond imaginings of either person credible? More importantly, if what that person comes up with is entirely disconnected from the way things actually are and the way people actually behave, maybe that's an indication that something's wrong. If the leader of a country has to tell a bald-faced lie in order to get Congress to do what he wants, maybe that's an indication that the justification for it isn't quite as obvious as he thinks it is. The truth about what it means to be a saint or a hero or a patriot or the right path forward for a country or anything whatsoever, isn't something that we can grasp merely by consulting our own pre-existing ideas about the way things ought to be. It's something we can try to grasp to the extent we grasp it at all, only by being honest about the reality we encounter. The truth is that no leader and no saint has ever been perfect, and that there have always been and always will be human beings who are deeply admirable in some ways and deeply flawed in others, and the paradoxical truth is that we ought to honor them even so. Truth is messy and complicated and not the sort of thing that can be tied up with a neat little bow, and it's very often different than we want it to be. To recognize that truth must be pursued in and through an honest encounter with reality and not imposed from without is to recognize that the truth we ultimately discover might well not be the truth we thought we'd find. To serve truth with single-minded devotion is always to take the risk that things might not turn out as you want them to. In the example I used, reality was twisted in the interest of instilling truth in the soul. But if Flannery O'Connor is right, if I have to fabricate reality in order to convey my truth, then what I'm conveying is probably not a truth at all. And so, with all of this in hand, I want to take another look at Grandma in the Sweater. I want to propose that in the situation of Grandma in the Sweater, and in other instances where we feel compelled to lie, most of us simply lack knowledge. We don't know what Grandma needs to hear from us, or even 
since most of us do not have the virtue of truthfulness to begin with, we don't even know how to truthfully present ourselves to her. We know that we don't like the sweater. We know that we love our grandmother. We know that she, we appreciate all the hard work she put into our gift. How can we present ourselves in a way that doesn't go against any of those truths? Asserting the first fact that comes to mind, it's hideous, won't do it. It's harsh and dismissive and inconsistent with the love and respect you feel for your grandmother. The lie, I love it, doesn't do it either. It's inconsistent with what you owe your grandmother, which is the truthful presentation of yourself. Far from having some kind of privileged access to what grandma needs to hear from us, I think most of us are just in a position of ignorance in ticklish, ticklish situations like these. We don't know what grandma needs to hear, and we don't know how to present ourselves truthfully. In such situations, we often take the easy way out and present ourselves falsely. But I don't think we have to present ourselves falsely. I have been arguing that in many of the cases where we feel compelled to lie, we do so because the factual assertions that present themselves to us, assertions like, this is so ugly, strike us as inadequate to what we want to convey. The sweater is ugly, but saying so fails to capture the effort and love that went into the sweater. But we also don't know what we ought to convey or how to convey it. We don't have the moral or mental sophistication to find words adequate to the complexity of the situation we find ourselves in. One way around situations like these is simply to say less, I think. So I'll tell a little story here, and then I'll, I'll work towards wrapping this up. Um, I like to cook. My husband is a very honest person, and he always tells me what he thinks of it. And it works for us. I can handle it. Right? Uh, but we had an older couple, friends. They're like parents to my husband. We had them over. And my husband was doing as he does. He was critiquing dinner. And he's like, well, this is fine, but, you know, it's too salty. And, and the, the husband of the couple that we had had over, he just he got, he got very upset. And, he, and, he, and he, he pointed at my husband and he said, or he pointed at his wife and he said, she could feed me a bowl of salt and I would eat it. Right? But now notice what he said. He's a very honest person. He didn't say he would say he liked it. He said he would eat it. Right? Sometimes we can be most truthful by saying less than we need to. We can wear the sweater. We can praise the craftsmanship. We can swallow our pride and wear the ugly sweater to church, much as it shames us. And we honor our grandmother, and we honor her work, and we don't lie. We can say less. Right? We don't always have to find something to say. In this, now, if she presses us, she might press us, right? She might say, but do you like it? And then I think you have to be honest. I, don't think, I think your grandma probably won't die if you say, it's not the color I would have chosen, right? You can gently and honestly acknowledge the truth. But it's not just about making true assertions, right? It's about presenting yourself honestly to another. And that's a skill. And it takes cultivation. And it takes effort. And it's hard. Um, 
so in most of the situations where we feel compelled to lie, I think it's a mistake to think we already know what the other person needs from us. In situations where we don't know, I think Flannery O'Connor is right. We have to be humble in the face of what is. And very often that humility will mean limiting ourselves to honoring the truths we do know. Okay, but you all are, have just been waiting to hear about Nazis at the door, right? So we have, to, we have to say something about that. So I want to conclude by saying something about that. Um, I think it's worth pointing out first that most of us, finding ourselves in Nazi-occupied territory, surrounded by people in need of places to hide, would probably do what almost everyone else in Nazi-occupied territory actually did do, which is refuse to take the risk of helping anyone at all. I think we, we need to be aware of that in ourselves, right? Uh, to even be in a position to have to consider lying to a Nazi about one's efforts to oppose them would already be to have demonstrated beyond ordinary courage. And we don't know in advance whether we would exhibit that courage or not. So it's audacious, 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 audacious for us to pretend to be authorities on this matter. But we do have examples of people who were courageous enough to risk their lives for others, and they worried about lies to Nazis too. So rather than speaking in my own voice, I want to consider one of those examples, because I think it reveals something important about why and how one might want to avoid lying, even to a Nazi. What I have in mind here, it's a wonderful book. It's called The Hiding Place. It's written by Corey Ten Boom, and it's true. It tells the story of her family's participation in the Dutch resistance during the Nazi occupation of Holland. Led by their father, Casper, an elderly watchmaker, the adult Ten Boom children and their families gave various forms of help including sanctuary to those fleeing the Nazis. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the details other than to say that they were truthful people. They, everybody knew they were hiding people from the Nazis because everybody knew the Ten Boom family and they knew that that's the kind of people they were. Uh, when the Nazis occupied their homeland, the Ten Boom family very quickly came up against the question of what they ought to say to the Nazis who came to search for those who they were hiding. And they didn't all agree on the appropriate course of action. Some of them really did refuse to lie. Some were creative with the truth. Some of them sometime lied. But the book makes it clear that they all continued to consider lies, even lies told to Nazis, something that they ought to avoid. And they tried to avoid it. And I think it's interesting to ask why. Why care about whether or not one is truthful to a Nazi? And again, I think we just have to look at what the Ten Boom family did. I think it reveals more than um, the theories of those who, of us who haven't been there. The first thing I think it's important to be clear about is that the Ten Boom family went to great lengths, at great personal risk to themselves, to avoid revealing the location of those they protected. Okay? Just like you recognizing you shouldn't tell your grandmother the sweater's hideous, they recognize they shouldn't be giving up the location of the people they were hiding to the Nazis. When pressed, they tried to avoid answering or else to give answers, which, while not lies, also did not reveal all they knew. Second, however, the Ten Booms clearly did feel compelled to be truthful to the Nazis 
where being truthful is understood as showing yourself to be as you are. When he was finally captured, the elderly Caspar Ten Boom told his captors who wanted to release him, right? They said, look, just tell us you won't hide any more Jewish people and we will let you go. You're old, you need to be at home, right? And he said, I'm going to continue to help anyone who comes to my door for as long as I'm alive, right? He refused to tell them what they wanted to hear, and he died in captivity a few days later. During an interrogation about her activities by a Nazi lieutenant, Casper's daughter, Corey, told her interrogator that in the eyes of God, those he persecuted were just as valuable as he was. The youngest Ten Boom boy spontaneously played the banned Dutch national anthem on the church organ during a crowded Sunday service. The Ten Boom family cared about being truthful, even to Nazis. And they clearly understood being truthful to include how they conducted themselves, both towards their persecutors and toward those in need of help. They understood actual lies to be contrary to this and avoided telling them, but their focus was clearly more on living truthfully than on their various factual assertions. Why? Right? Well, I think we need to ask why they thought this was so important. What I think we see in their truthfulness is a kind of severity toward the Nazis and to the rest of society. The Ten Booms are truthful because their encounter with reality, both with those they help and those who they resist, has enabled them to see important truths. Truths about the inherent goodness of those who are persecuted and the evil of what the Nazis do. And in being truthful, in insisting on truthful, on being truthful, they were witnessing to the truth they saw in the world. Caspar Ten Boom's captors wanted to believe they were doing him a kindness by letting him go. Corey's interrogator wanted to believe that in persecuting the disabled and mentally infirm, he was making the world a better place. Corey and her father, by being truthful, refused to let their captors take refuge in those comfortable deceptions. They forced them to look at reality. Casper's words provoked rage in his captors, and he died in captivity. Corey's words provoked reflection from the lieutenant, who ultimately confessed to her that he was tormented by the things he did. And then he sent her to a concentration camp anyway. Right? He was like, yeah, I feel terrible about this. Bye. Um, but, but we don't know, and we can't know, the true impact of their truthfulness, other than that their witness lives on today. And so this takes me to the final point I want to make. Many of us tend to feel a great deal of certainty about the need to lie and about the inevitable good consequences of lying and the inevitable bad consequences of telling the truth. But we don't know those things. We don't know even the immediate consequences of the one or the other. Still less can we see what the long-term ramifications would be. We tend to think that we will only help the world by bending it to our will, by making sure that things turn out as we think we know they should. But maybe, just maybe, the only thing that can really help us is to be truthful to the way things are. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.